Did you know that one out of four children will develop a pediatric feeding disorder? That is one nugget of information that I picked up on the podcast today. I had an amazing talk with Melanie Potek. She is a speech-language pathologist and a wealth of information on all things feeding. We talked today about what is picky eating? What are some of the characteristics of a picky eater? And when does that turn into something that warrants more intervention. And she talked about feeding as being developmental and feeding time. You know, how can we make that a joyous experience, whether your child is younger, whether your child is a toddler, or whether your child is school age? This is an amazing episode filled with bite-sized nuggets that you can take away and either use with your own child or share with your clients. Melanie is an international speaker on the topic of feeding babies, toddlers, and school-age kids. I have always really been inspired by her ability to disseminate information across platforms. She has really branched out from the field of speech pathology, and she has written books, and she has been... um, in different publications. She has been in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Parents Magazine. And she has many, many books, uh, Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater. She has a new book coming out called Responsive Feeding. Wow. Such great information. Excited for you to dig on in. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 47. We have an amazing episode today. We have with us Melanie Potek from Munchbug. Thanks so much for having us on, Melanie. And I'm so excited to have you on. I've seen you on Instagram, and I think maybe I heard you talk at ASHA. And you're always just an inspiration, I think, for me, of how you share information and how you're really getting out there with the books you've written and how you've been featured in so many amazing different uh, digital venues and print. So I'm so excited to be able to have you on and chat with you because you have such an area of expertise that is so very important to a lot of people who are going to be listening today. So welcome. Oh my goodness, Rose. I'm just genuinely just, I want you to know how much I'm thrilled to be here. I have been following you for a while and we're going to have a little love fest here, but... (laughs) I just think your information is so authentic and so family-centered, and that's why I like it so much. So I'm really excited to be here. So thank you. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about you, your journey to kind of being a speech therapist and how you started, you know, niching down into this area of feeding where you've just been able to share such great information? How did that kind of all take place? Well, you will love this. In graduate school, I specialized in augmentative communication and I got my first job as an AAC specialist. And I think I probably seemed fine to everybody else, but in my heart, I knew this was not 
my jam. (laughs) I didn't think I was very good at it. It was a lot of long nights of trying to really think the way you need to think as an AAC specialist. And I'm so grateful for all of you out there who, who specialize in augmented communication. But you know how things just start to happen in a funny way. A friend of mine went on maternity leave and said, can you cover for me in the NICU? And I'm like, can you train me? And she did. She really devoted a lot of time to train me. And that's how I ended up in the NICU for years. And from there, I started seeing those little babies come back to me who still needed support because feeding is developmental. Just because you resolve the breast and bottle feeding issues doesn't mean they aren't going to have trouble when they start solids or they enter that traditional picky eating stage as toddlers. So I realized that this was really my love. And where it stemmed back to was I had my own very adventurous eater. My first daughter was an amazing eater and I thought I was so good at this. And then (laughs) I got my second daughter and she was very, very picky. And I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) So it's that personal experience tied with that sudden unexpected pivot in my career. And now here I am. I'm the author of, gosh, six books now. And I teach and speak around the world and get to treat kids and coach parents. And I am so grateful for that little pivot and for that friend of mine saying, would you cover for me while I'm on maternity leave? That's amazing. Moments in life that suddenly send you on a new trajectory. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. And what's so funny, I have three kids of my own. Um, my son is the baby. He just started kindergarten this year. But what's amazing is when you have one child, you think all of your kids are going to be like oh, that yeah. first child. And then the second right. one comes along and you're like, okay, that was different. You know, so it's just, <laughs> exactly. It's just from everything. You just think it's going to be the same and it couldn't be more different. I love that because when I was, before I started really working with autistic students, I really was just open to learning so much about being a speech therapist because our field, and I don't think people understand that if they're not a speech therapist, but our field is so, so broad. And I always would go to stuff on feeding and NICU. It was like never anything I had experience with, but I always found it to be extremely fascinating. And something that's just so important for so many people, you know, I did work at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism and we had a, there was a feeding clinic in the same building. So I feel like maybe I did an observation or some of our kids would work with the feeding team. And even though it's like, I'm not, I'm just a lifelong learner. So this is why the podcast was so fun for me. I can't believe we're almost a year old, this podcast, but it's just fun for me to come on and talk to different people who have areas of expertise that, that are different than mine. So I'm excited to learn to, today from you about picky eating because there's just so many people out there. I just know with my own kids, I have definitely felt mom guilt when another mom puts on Facebook, you know, their child's perfectly curated, like they're an Instagram mom influencers lunch and my, <laughs> and my kids want to bring Doritos. So I'm excited to talk about some of these things because I think a lot of parents really struggle. And then they're wondering, you know, is this picky eating? Is this something that needs more intervention? But talk to us a little bit about, you know, what are some of the characteristics of picky eating? You know, it kind of depends on the age. Um, In my book, Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater, that I wrote with pediatrician Namali Fernando, we specifically go through each age and we talk about the cognitive skills and the motor skills and the parenting skills that really interplay with each stage of eating. As I said earlier, 
feeding is developmental, just like learning to crawl, walk, run. I probably say that in every interview I do, but it's so important for parents, especially to understand that when kids get stuck in a picky eating stage, they can get really entrenched in that stage. And as a matter of fact, one out of four typically developing children will develop a pediatric feeding disorder. So some of the signs that parents might want to watch for, and gosh, there's a long list of them, but just to give you the shortest list and the most common ones are that really that mealtimes are stressful. Mm -hmm. I always say, tell your pediatrician stress to him or her that you're stressed, Mm -hmm. stress that you're stressed Yeah, because mealtimes need to be a time for connection. They shouldn't be about worrying whether or not your kid is going to eat and your daily interaction with your child shouldn't be you thinking ahead to the next meal, wondering, oh my gosh, you didn't eat breakfast. Is he going to eat lunch? Mm-hmm. You know, that really gets in the way of being present and mm-hmm. really having those really special moments with your kids that are a part of parenting and part of creating memories. So specifically, some of the things you want to look for is if your child is really rigid about food, I think rigid's the best way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Do they only want specific brands? And if you don't have that specific brand, do they get really upset about mm-hmm. it? Or do they just not eat, period? Do they need specific places to eat? Do they have to eat in front of the TV, in front of an iPad at the table? They won't eat at this table, but they'll eat it on that couch. They won't eat in the school cafeteria, but they'll just snarf everything down at three o'clock because they're literally starving. Mm-hmm. And then just those specific rules on what, when, and how food is served. Do they feel comfortable with new foods on their plate? Even if there's no expectation of eating it, do they do okay at family mealtimes when there are new people seated at the table like grandma and grandpa? Or is that really stressful for them? Because learning to eat is is a very emotional experience. Food is emotional. Mm -hmm. And we really want to take not only the whole child into consideration, but the whole family as well. Wow. That's really a lot to think about. Yeah. I never thought of a mother's anxiety or father's anxiety about if your child doesn't eat one meal, are they going to eat the next and thinking that way? My kids really haven't had those types of concerns. So that's really something that I think could really just affect your mental health and really your family balance as far as you know, the that's just family dynamic. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So many parents, and they're often moms say to me, yeah. first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning is, is he going to eat breakfast? And then he doesn't eat breakfast. And the next thought is, oh my gosh, is he going to eat lunch? And how do I get him to eat lunch is the way they think about it. Right. It's very stressful 24 seven. Yeah. Wow. That's really a lot. I never really analyzed. Although my daughter, my one daughter is we call her kind of a slug. She's always today at the bus. She was like, I didn't eat breakfast. And she's like slurping down an applesauce while the other kids came down and they had breakfast. (laughs) But I can see where that can be a stressful experience. And I never thought if there were other people present that that could really affect how a person might be eating and their ability to consume food. That's really a lot. Yeah. And you know, like, so from the autistic perspective, I definitely have worked with students who parents would report, you know, they only eat this certain thing. They only eat this certain brand, you know, and some of the things we would try to do is just eat the the same food, transition to different brands, because now, especially with COVID and the pandemic, I can assure you that a lot of parents are probably really struggling because my husband does the grocery shopping and he'll say, 
they literally did not have what the kids typically want for snack, you know? And so kids, yeah, yeah, they can't believe that. Supply chain issues are really impacting these families in more ways than one. Right. Um, And when your kid only eats one brand of chicken nuggets and they don't have those on the shelf, you panic. Right. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Okay, good. That's good information. So what can we do, you know, if we're talking about different stages and I love that idea of that, you know, feeding is developmental. I never really thought of it that way. Um, what can we do at the baby stage to make sure that it's a joyful feeding experience? Because I know, you know, I have three little ones. I'm sure that when I was feeding my first child, it probably looked a little different than my third <laughs> who actually had enlarged tonsils and was always choking on things and, you know, all the things, right. And you have all the kids running around. But what are some things that we can maybe get in place to make that that kind of joyful experience like you noted? I just love the way you phrase that. Well, you know, if we if we think about starting solids, I think that's a good place to start. The most important thing when you're starting solids is to make sure that you're learning to read baby's cues. And we start solids at about six months. So by now, we have a pretty good idea of how baby's communicating and it changes month to month. So learning to read baby's cues for hunger and for satiety, or I'm all done, right? Mm -hmm. And also really learning that feeding isn't always about eating. Feeding isn't always about eating. Feeding is a dance. It's a relationship. It's a back and forth experience. Sometimes your dance partner picks up on the steps and you're whirling around the dance floor and you're having an amazing meal together. And other times they're like, I think I'll just sit this one out. (laughs) And, you know, and that's, we have accepting that, knowing that, especially with babies who are starting solids and starting to practice a lot of the motor skills that come along with learning to eat. That's so important. So that communication is called responsive feeding. And responsive feeding is something that was developed back in the, gosh, there's early literature from 1998. But when I first started becoming aware of it was from the responsive parenting movement when I worked in the NICU. And then it we started to see it in more literature in the registered dietitians arena, et cetera. And so it's been around for a long time, but I just wrote a new book about it. It'll be out January 4th. It's available for pre-order now. And Rose, I swear, I, I said I'd never write another book. I, <laughs> done, done. I'm like, I, I, I want to pick your brain someday about that. That's on my hashtag <laughs> life. A lot of the things you've accomplished, they're on my life full list. Okay, I love it. Oh, yes. But you, you know, just had to, right? You just had to write this book. Is it behind well, you? Is it that one, Responsive Feeding? Yeah, it's right behind okay. over my shoulder here. Yeah. Responsive Feeding. It's called Responsive Feeding, The Baby First Guide to Stress-Free Weaning, meaning weaning onto solids, right. healthy right. eating, and mealtime bonding. And the most important words there are mealtime bonding. Yeah. That's what this is about. That's what speech therapy is about. That's what mm-hmm. communication is about. So that's what was sitting on my desk for over two years now. I had the draft. I had like, I was ready, but I needed to put it together formally. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm tired. A lot. It's a lot. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. And my entire speaking schedule, gosh, I don't know. I think it was over 12, 13, 13 cities all around the world got canceled. Uh-huh. And I kept staring at it going, okay, I guess I'll write that book. So <laughs> I got it accepted at my publisher and it'll be out January 4th. And the reason why is because of the question you just asked, mm-hmm. what's the best thing we can do for babies and young toddlers to help them develop a joy for food? And the best thing we can do is understand how kids communicate 
and respect those cues and help them learn to communicate more over time. So it's basically all about speech therapy tied into feeding, responsive feeding. Oh, I love that. That's so very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, good to know. Because I talked to, I'm on uh, some parenting podcast. I do a lot of guesting. So I will keep that in mind. I think a lot of people would be be interested in that, especially if this picky eating and borderline having a feeding issue is really causing a lot of, you know, family imbalance and, and a lot of stress. I never really analyzed it that way, just because it's not an area, you know, that I've really dealt with on a personal level. But it, I can see how it's just like when you have an, a concern with food on any level for any age person, that that can just consume your whole being and your it mental does. And your question about what do we do for babies, you know, six months up to age three is the most important time to develop that love for food. Mm -hmm. And then from the preschool years, that's when we really start to foster even more interest in fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, Rose, because give me a cookie anytime. (laughs) I'm a dessert (laughs) girl. I'm I'm not saying we got to just eat fruits and vegetables, but eating a wide variety, we develop those skills from six months to age three. Well, that's interesting. So, so then your rec, what would recommendations be? Like, I was always kind of holding my breath when my, when my kids go for their well visit and my doctor who I love and adore Dr. Zach here in Ohio says, so what's your favorite food? And I'm like, always afraid my kids are going to be like Oreos, Pop-Tart, because that's like really (laughs) what I kind of grew up, you know, having desserts in my home. I had like, there were four kids in the house and my mom and dad worked and, you know, we were well nourished, but you know, we had a lot of processed food in our home. And so, you know, they never have said that at the doctor, fingers crossed. But you know what? (laughs) And you know, like I've done different things, but I'm curious, you know, if we do have our own toddler, could you talk about toddler and school age as far as if we feel like our child, you know, has some of these picky eating characteristics, what are some things that we can do at those different ages to just be getting ahead of this? Well, one of the things we have to keep in mind with toddlers is go back to infancy that first year for a second, that baby is growing like... (laughs) Like crazy, right? Every time you turn around, they're growing out of another outfit. It's, I I can't get over how fast they grow in terms of both height, even though they're mostly laying down and their weight. It's really, really fascinating. And their brain growth as well. So as parents, we get in this mode of, oh yeah, feed them, grow, feed them, grow. And then about 18 months of age, suddenly things really slow down. So after baby's first birthday, they don't grow as rapidly. They grow a, they grow well, they grow steady, but it's nothing like the first mm-hmm. year. So we have to change our mindset. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is right between 18 months and age two, growth slows down even more. Mm-hmm. Here we had this kiddo who was eating anything and everything. And now they're like, no. <laughs> and that's the other problem. Two-year-olds have now discovered the power of no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so from a cognitive standpoint, we got a little two-year-old with very strong opinions and they're supposed to say no. It's part of their cognitive development to figure this out. And we also have a kiddo whose growth is slowed down and that means their appetite also slows down. So we're keeping that in mind, but what can we do even though all of that's going on and is supposed to be going on? What we can do is watch for those red flags that we talked about earlier, but continue to offer a variety of safe food, meaning we don't want anything chokeable or anything too advanced, of course, Right. and only offer about a tablespoon of new foods on your toddler's plate. And if you're going to offer something you know he loves, don't offer that much of it. Maybe you know four to six tablespoons. They can always have more. 
And it's never contingent upon take a bite of your green beans and then you can have more chicken nuggets. We never do that. But it's more a matter of exposure. Hey, these are green beans. You know, I've put two green beans on your plate. Let's, let's take them apart. Let's pick out the beans. Let's see if we can put one under our nose and make a mustache. You know, any way we can foster that interest and make friends with green beans. That's what we're striving for. But again, feeding doesn't necessarily equate to eating and being okay with the fact that your toddler may eat absolutely nothing at lunch, or they might eat three or four bites, or they might chow down like it's their last meal. You just don't know. And it's going to be okay. On my website, on my free toolbox tab, melaniepotok.com or mymunchbug.com. They're both one and the same. I know you'll have it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. But there is a free toolbox and you can download over a dozen free downloads. And one of them is this hungry, not hangry schedule to know that about 18 months of age on up into school age, the kids really need to be on a regular meal and snack time schedule because hunger is the secret sauce to eventually being willing to taste a new food. But even if they taste it, it doesn't mean they're going to love it. That's okay. Rose, the number one thing I tell all of my parents is what we're going to learn here is that not Every taste has to taste good, but it's still fun to taste. Mm-hmm. That's what we're learning in feeding therapy. Oh, I like that. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so we're trying new things because we're I feel to- like my kids are pretty rigid in, and I try to do, you know, when my kids were younger and maybe before I started my business, APA Speech, I would be very consumed with, I still cook and stuff for my family, but, you know, in the evenings, I would be very consumed about my kids not getting enough vegetables. And it's kind of like the way, like the, when you're talking about this, like I think about like, I want my kids to be readers, right? Like they need to read 20 minutes a day. So I model that behavior because I'm completely always immersed in like either books about speech therapy or books about business. I'm always wanting to learn, you know what I mean? And so I feel like I'm modeling that behavior. I'm encouraging them to read kind of like the same way with food where I do eat pretty healthy. I try to encourage that. I give them exposure, but there are some people who, and maybe you'll get into that, but I don't know what your thought is on putting like pureed vegetables in something else. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because there was actually a pretty popular book a while back that I bought that when I had the time and and actually talking to you now, I can't believe I ever had time to do this, but (laughs) I would make vegetables, you know, like put them in my food processor and then immerse them in a different food because the kids were getting nutrients, but they didn't necessarily know. It wasn't like I was lying about what they were eating, but do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like a vegetable. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something okay to do? To sneak or not to sneak, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to break this down. I'm going to give you (laughs) two sides of this. Okay. I have that book on my bookshelf right behind me. Okay. Yeah. Exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Let's break that down. First of all, what's loaded there is the word sneak. Right. You you weren't sneaking anything in. Right. I mean, Rose, it's not like when you made brownies earlier in the week, you announced to everybody that you put corn oil in the brownies. Like we just don't announce every ingredient. Right. So I just want to encourage parents that if you want to throw in some hemp seeds or whatever, you know, or a little protein powder into something to boost up the nutrients, you don't have to announce it. But where we get in trouble 
is where we're not pulling kids into the kitchen and letting them experience making that smoothie with protein powder or those brownies with occasionally some black beans smashed into them, right? Right, right. Things that, or like you said, veggie purees. In one of my books, I have tons of recipes how you can include veggie purees, but we bring the kids into the kitchen. Not every time. I mean, right. who does that every time? Nobody right. brings their kids in every night, right? Right. Well, we try to do it as much as we can because, for example, one of my recipes has um, a chocolate pudding that has avocado in it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you start with that when the kids are little, how do they know every chocolate pudding doesn't have avocado? Right. I mean, right. They're like, yeah, it, yeah, chocolate pudding always has avocado. That's their attitude. Right. Because that's the way we make chocolate pudding in our family. However, if you've got older kids and suddenly you decide to try black bean brownies, for example, and you've never made those before, and you end up making them on your own, the kids don't get a chance to be in there, they're at school or whatever. Here's the way I encourage parents to approach it is that when you have the brownies out on the platter or everybody's having a little bit with dinner, you know, I'm a big fan of serving a little bit of dessert with dinner Mm -hmm. and they go to take a bite and you go to take a bite and they're going to say, oh, these are yummy or these are great mom. Thanks for making these. That's when I would mention, you know what? These are really good. I wasn't sure because I tried a new recipe. These have black beans in them and I was kind of skeptical. But I'm going to take another bite. I think I kind of like these. What do you think, guys? Do you like these better than the ones I made a couple of weeks ago? Or let's kind of rank them. Like get a conversation right. going right. so that the kids are like, oh, yeah, sometimes we put new things in different recipes because that gets us out of that rigid behavior that we talked yeah. about earlier. Yeah. And even out of some brand specificity, you know, mm-hmm. so many kids I work with only eat one brand, one blue box of macaroni and cheese. Yeah. So it's all tied together, but what, what gets in the way is that word sneak. Right. Right. Anything in. Right. Right. Because I don't announce, yeah, the corn oil. (laughs) I like that. That's good. See, you reframed it. I thank you for that. That's really good information. Such great information. So what would a parent do? We do have parents that listen to the podcast. If, you know, they, their child has some of these picky eating characteristics, when does somebody seek more intense intervention for this picky eating? Or when does it kind of get into this, you know, kind of danger zone where we might need to really get some help so the student has enough nutrition and, you know, you know, and all those different, and I realize it's behavioral and it's, it's a lot more than just the nutrition aspect, but when should a parent seek intervention? Well, I'm going to give you some very specific examples, but again, I just want to preface it that if it's stressing you out, seek help now, Yeah, because the earlier you get support, the sooner you'll be on your way to adventurous eating. And it could be something as simple as, here's a few ideas, come see me in a month. You know, I mean, it's sometimes it's just a matter of sort of doing some gentle shaping on the family dynamic and we're on our way and everything's great. But the longer you wait, we have more unlearning to do. Mm -hmm. So to talk about some specifics around that, now that we're talking about toddlers, preschoolers, school age, right? Mm -hmm. So let's sort of focus on that two to six-year-old set. If you're not seeing a change in your child by age roughly three-ish, you know, where you're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel, keep bringing it up to your pediatrician. Even if you have to schedule a separate appointment without your child, maybe a phone Mm -hmm. call salt to stress that you're stressed, that you would like some guidance around this and you would like more guidance than, oh, just don't pressure him. 
because I don't believe in pressuring children either. Don't get me wrong, but I have so many parents on my caseload with eight, 10, 12 year olds who have been quote, not pressuring the child for years and years and years. And now their poor kiddo is diagnosed with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. You know, they have so Mm -hmm. much anxiety about trying new foods. Mm -hmm. So there's a big difference between pressure and gentle nudges. And what feeding therapy does, like any sort of pediatric therapy, is we Mm -hmm. gently nudge the child to develop a skill. And it's done, it's an art Mm -hmm. and it's done with love. Mm -hmm. And, but if the longer we wait, the more gentle nudges and more time it will take. So the things to look for are, are those rigid patterns, not tolerating new foods on their plate, not being willing to eat at the table most of the time. Sometimes kids are like, you know, just being kids and we understand that. Not being willing to eat in other environments, being really, really hesitant or anxious about school environments, mm-hmm. not wanting to eat in the cafeteria or in the classroom, that kind of thing not only being willing to go to a couple different restaurants or one restaurant at a specific time of day when it's mm-hmm. not crowded, you mm-hmm, know, right? kids who are really anxious about mm-hmm. trying new foods, anxiety will spread into any space we give it. Mm-hmm. And before we know it, we've got a child who is anxious about new foods on his plate. And that eventually morphs into and only eats in front of an iPad and never wants to eat anywhere else. And I truly feel comfortable telling everyone listening, that's not an exaggeration. That is my caseload. So getting that early, early help, even through early intervention is, you know, kids almost about to turn three, you need a few tips Mm -hmm. trying to see if they can't help you or just signing up for a parent consult one hour with me. Right. That's that's what I'm here for is to get everybody on that path to more adventurous eating. That's my question too. So do you think that if parents, and that's great information. So if parents are like, oh man, this is my child, or if somebody listening is like, oh geez, do you think this is typically something that would be covered by insurance or is it something that you should seek an outside private pay? Do you do these certain consults? I'm just wondering, like in my school-based brain, I'm thinking like, is this something, this is usually not something that would ever be picked up by a school-based therapist. This is something that would definitely be outside. And for all of your listeners, here's the reason why. Picky eating is a very much an umbrella term. Right. It's the one that parents search on, even if they have the most highly selective eater who only eats two foods, right? Mm -hmm. They still search on the word picky eating, but they say to me later, I wish I just had a picky eater. My life would be so much easier. Nevertheless, if you quote, just have a garden variety picky eater, it's still very stressful. Right. And so knowing that, as we said at the beginning of our broadcast here, one out of four typically developing children can actually develop a pediatric feeding disorder, which would be covered by insurance. It's so important to catch these picky eating habits early mm-hmm. so that you don't have to go into those long, many, many years of feeding therapy, which I'm happy to do with you, but <laughs> there are ways to avoid that if we possibly can. And we don't have enough time today, but there's so many factors from a medical perspective, a right. motor perspective that goes into that. Mm-hmm. So to, to just reframe it a little bit, some of the red flags for these infants and toddlers that might indicate more than just picky eating, a true feeding disorder would be irritability before, during, or after feeding. Before, during, or after, it's not just in the high chair. So something Mm -hmm. to think about. 
taking a long time for each feeding. Parents would say to me, yeah, you know, it's pretty well, but it takes about an hour. <laughs> it shouldn't take about an hour because before you know it, it's time to eat again. <laughs> right. So we can, we can help with that. We can help with that. Also, coughing at mealtimes a lot, frequently, gagging a lot, more than your six-month-old who's just learning to eat and has Mm -hmm. that hypersensitive gag reflex. You know, we're talking about a child who's nine, 10 months old, two years old in that area, that that age range, Mm -hmm. gagging a lot, vomiting on a weekly basis, gurgling when they talk, all those red, excuse Mm -hmm. me, when they talk or when they eat. All of those are red flags that there may be a swallowing disorder, which Mm -hmm. falls under a pediatric feeding disorder. But really overall, it's any stall in that developmental process of feeding. Mm -hmm. Just like if your child wasn't walking by 14 months of age, which is kind of our rough cutoff, right? Mm -hmm. Or if your child isn't eating soft solids, starting to chew on avocados, starting to eat some crackers that are easily meltable, those sorts of things by the end of eight months, I'd like you to get a consult. If your child is only eating a handful of foods by 12 months and they're primarily breastfed, yay breastfeeding. We want to encourage breastfeeding as long as we can. But by 12 months, those kids should really have a wide variety of solids. They don't have to eat a lot of volume, but they Mm -hmm. should be trying a lot of new foods. So anything that doesn't quite fit in with that developmental process. And again, in my book, Raising Healthy Happy Eater, I have that all outlined for you. Such great information. Oh my goodness. I love it. So fun to learn from you. So where can people learn more about you and your work if they want to reach out? I'm at melaniepotok.com, P-O-T-O-C-K, or mymunchbug.com. They're the same website. I also have a, a YouTube channel with over 150 free videos for you. And one of the playlists there, Rose, since we've been talking about it, is how to talk to your pediatrician about this. Okay. Because we love pediatricians, but they are swamped. And right, right now, especially during the pandemic, they don't have a lot of time. So there's some good strategies there on how to really seek out their help and help them listen to the fact that you're stressed. Oh, I love that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us and I'll see you soon. Thanks, Melanie. Bye, Rose. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Autism Outreach Podcast. I love that you are here every single week when a new episode drops. We talk all about autism and communication. I want to share some reviews with you. When you subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, it means so much to me. I love to hear your feedback. Our review today is from Julie L. Julie said, very knowledgeable. Rose is so knowledgeable in the area of autism and communication skills. I love her real life examples. So helpful, exclamation point. I look forward to taking her tips and applying them to my students in the middle school setting. Thanks so much, Julie, for being a part of the ABA speech community. Make sure that you hit subscribe when you go to Apple Podcasts and write a review for the Autism Outreach Podcast. I always love hearing from you, and maybe I will read your review online. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. 
Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.